Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, a city of Burnaby reports says 15% of short-term rental operators are breaking the rules, but the city is having a hard time shutting them down. We look into why. And as ski hills on the North Shore and Whistler struggle with a low snowpack, we look at the longer-term challenges climate change poses for ski resorts. And we continue our year-in-review series as we look at Vancouver's real estate market in 2023 and what to expect in the new year. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. We're learning Burnaby is facing challenges enforcing uh, BC short-term rental rules. In a re- new report to the city, we're learning 15% of the short-term rental operators in uh, Burnaby are breaking the rules, and the city is having a hard time enforcing those rules. Joining me now uh, to talk about uh, the issue is Burnaby City Councillor Sav Dollywell. Sav, thank you for joining us. You're welcome, Jazz. Good to hear your voice. Uh, what's causing this problem, first and foremost? Well, um... I guess it's a non-compliance in summary. I guess that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, as like many other cities, are having difficulty enforcing uh, bylaws, um, and people seem to be uh, using different names. Uh, they don't need a whole lot of, uh, um, I guess, uh, I would say, uh, uh, you know, any kind of uh, restriction that we city put on, they seem to be ignoring it because they can go directly to the platform uh, provider, these uh, the uh, short-term rental providers, and and register, you know, put the ad on, and and the ads don't really always have the address. Mm-hmm. They just simply say somewhere in Burnaby, blah blah blah. So it's a uh, difficult for us, quite difficult right now to chase down. Um, everyone that puts the ads on and 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 the platforms uh, themselves, they don't. Uh, we try to have a, an agreement with us at the city when we bought and buy law, mm-hmm. and that uh, they're not overly keen to do that because they, you know they're dealing with a whole lot of cities, they're different ones, and they continue. So, well, we'll do our best to make sure, but there's no formal agreement. So, what happens is a lot of ads are going on, and a lot of people are are getting um, uh, guests in their homes. But they don't have a license. They get we get complaints both from the strata uh, people as well as the neighbors, and by and we need a whole lot of uh, proof of that, evidence of that, as you know, before we can do anything. So and even I just want to confirm something. We have to write a letter. It's, it's such a very convoluted system to really get people to comply. So is this a case of the city not having the resources? By that I mean staffing to just. A follow-up on some of these? You, you say it's very difficult to even get simple things as an address uh, yes. from these sites. So is it a question of it's just t- it's too laborious or is it a lack of staff right now for the city for, for the city of Burnaby? Yeah, very laborious. Yeah. And at the end of the day, when we do determine what not and, and, and we find, yes, the, the owner is, is violating this by life knowingly some, most of the time, um, we they don't uh, give a whole lot of care to our warning letters that's and all that, and when we even give them a fine, which is a basically, as you know, by law notice fine of five hundred dollars a maximum uh, per day or per per violation, and they don't seem to even bother paying or doing anything with it. You said five hundred dollars um, per day is what you're finding them, but the provincial yeah. government uh, has the new legislation from the province says you can find them up to three thousand dollars per day. That's 
Yeah, that what they have brought in a new legislation, as you know, just recently in October, mm-hmm. which where they have said that the system that some of the municipalities use, which is called municipal uh, ticketing information system, mm-hmm. if they use that, they can have they used to have a fine maximum fine uh, capability of a thousand dollars a day, which which was twice as much the cities that use local bylaw enforcement, uh, enforcement act. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can have only 500, but the MTI users can use up to 1,000. Now the new legislation uh, allows them to have those fine increase to $3,000 per violation, mm-hmm. which, is, which would be significant, I think, uh, deterrent for people. And what we have asked, the problem is now, Jazz, is to cities like Burnaby, who are still using local government uh, bylaw, informers, uh, bylaw tickets enforcement act, inform, uh, enforcement act uh, to also give them the ability to to raise those fines to three thousand dollars. So when we do spend all that time chasing down and and finally giving out uh, giving ticket to someone, then at least it's worth um, uh, for them to really think twice about it. Because right now they just throw away five hundred dollars, and they, even if they have to pay, it's like a couple of nights of. Uh, of, of, of their money they can recoup. Yeah, so just to confirm here, so you can obviously find them $500, but that's under the Local Government Bylaw yeah. Notice Enforcement Act, and that's what Burnaby has. That's You're right. not yeah. able to find them, be- the $3,000, because that's under a different system called the Municipal Ticket Information System. So it's it, it, it the report, to my understanding, the City of Burnaby's report says it's far more complicated and requires lots of changes. So literally, you cannot find them three thousand dollars per night at this point. The way the system is set up, we can only maximum fine under our bylaws is five hundred dollars. Yeah. So that required new legislation then to to allow you to be able to fine under the the new system, the other system. No, the legislation already exists, but it has a limit. So we have asked for just we to allow under by municipal like local government by the notice and Forms act mm-hmm. to just simply it's a change, same as the MTI which is a maximum three thousand. That's okay. the only change we've asked for. Yes. Okay, that's a regulatory change. Okay. What I find interesting here is one, I wish they had thought of that before all of this was announced yeah. because yeah. it would have you know, been a lot I, easier for you guys. Yeah, I said, you know, uh, this would have been this is an oversight in my view. I don't think they meant to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they know the problem does exist. That's why they were very willing and supportive of the local government to say, you know, five hundred doesn't seem to do a thousand dollars doesn't seem to do a job. Let's make it three thousand. But but in uh, but they obviously overlooked that under the local government bylaw notice and Forces act, only maximum limit for any of our bylaws is a five hundred dollars. So. Uh, so we have asked for that, and the additional thing we ask for, Jazz, is what happens mostly to all the city, most of the cities. Any of the uh, bylaw enforcement tickets we give out, people don't generally pay, and and even uh, even within our system, uh, when we they don't pay, we have to go to the adjudicator. Adjudicators simply say, well, they haven't shown up, and and yes, you can now collect this ticket. And, and and then we try to chase them. If not, then we generally have to give to collection agencies. You know, it's so difficult to go to court to get that money. So, and we don't get much money back from the uh, collection agencies either. It's a hit and miss. So, what we have asked for is allowing uh, those people, uh, those, such violations which relate to land use uh, uh, failure or compliances, to have that money actually added to the property tax due uh, 
uh, notice tax. So, in other words, there's a way to collect that money. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, they will look at that uh, as well to how, allow the cities. How long would it take to cha- make these changes? Not. How long would it take to make these changes? I'm just curious. Well, I'm hoping that by May, when the act comes into effect, the, okay. the one that they have just brought in, that they will do at the same time. And then, then the big thing is happening. Uh, the uh, the province is doing uh, jazz is the registry system, but the province has committed to creating a registry. But the platform must comply, and they hopefully will have an agreement with them. They will not be able to put an ad unless people have a license. Oh, sorry, the, the registration number from the registrar, mm-hmm. and that registrar will only issue that that those who have a license. To, to do so. So so the system would hopefully be a lot more robust. You know, it's not to stop uh, STRs, but it's just to have only people that we know should be doing and what area they should be doing. Uh, and hopefully that will help us. Now, you've said that, you know, it's very difficult uh, to find these people for a variety of reasons. At the same time, the estimates are from this report that 15% of short-term uh, rental operators in Burnaby are breaking the rules. What's to say oh. that it's much higher than 15%? Because oh, you already no, have... no, it's much higher. Actually, about 65%. The only 15% of some of the people who have taken a taken a, uh, what you call a um, business license. That you've caught. Majority of them don't even take business license. Oh, so you think 65% of them... Uh, oh, yeah. Are breaking the oh, rules yeah. in Burnaby? A much higher percentage than fifteen percent uh, that people just don't care. Uh, people, you know, I obviously it's gotten to a point where you know you probably heard the horror stories where mm-hmm. many uh, you know people have companies now who are having something like I don't know a few dozens of units going on, uh, and and all they do is just um, do this is no longer a sort of a homeowner's thing and a quietly being done in the neighborhood. This is a large scale business. Yeah. That's being run in areas that were, which was meant to be developed like that. So it's a big, big problem for us. Sav, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. You yeah. take care and a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. The most wonderful time of year can also be the hardest time of year. The past few years have been difficult for people due to global unrest, the lasting impacts of uh, natural disasters and the pandemic. On top of this, people in BC continue to lose friends and family uh, and community members to unrelenting toxic drug poisoning as well. Those challenges can, of course, adversely affect uh, people's mental health. Add to that, of course, the holiday season as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, keeping your mental health, uh, keeping uh, uh, a in charge of your mental health more than anything, and of course, keeping uh, making sure you stay healthy is Yona Bud, therapist and a performance coach, and host of At Your Best with Yona Bud on CKNW. Yona, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Jazz. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you as well. Uh, what's what are some of the tips that uh, you know you would recommend for those who feel overwhelmed during the holiday season? So uh, it's a great question. It, it's it's very prominent this time in the year. Uh, you know, I think the the first thing has to be we have to kind of just chill a little bit and relax and and remember that you know there's no real way to celebrate this holiday all the do's and don'ts and things that you think people you know kind of put in your ear the kind of you know turns it uh, into a stressful you know day of, of obligation as opposed to a day of celebration so the first thing is you got to go with what feels good for you so if you find yourself getting caught up in the rigmarole of you know saying and doing and conducting yourself in a way that you're not comfortable you need to pull the you know take the reins back a little bit and just slow down mm-hmm. get an idea of what's going on around you and what's really expected of you what do you really have to do in terms of obligations to maybe family 
and, and friends and business acquaintances. But for the most part, not getting sucked into this, you know, pretend uh, celebration if you're not in a celebrating kind of mood. And for a lot of people, it, for being it forced upon them uh, makes it a difficult time of the year. So protect your, to, to protect your mental health, first and foremost, is to sort of manage expectations more than anything mm-hmm. uh, this holiday mm-hmm. season. Um, I, I, and you raise a very good point. Uh, there is a tendency to feel pressured to do a lot too, isn't it? I mean, beyond the dinners, meet lots of people, be social. That's part of the pressure, isn't it? Yeah, big time. It you know that social pressure and the pressure from your peers to you know attend this and attend that and why weren't you there and you know how come you didn't show up at the office party and so on. It's it's you know and often for a lot of people you know they don't want to go to situations or be involved in situations myself included where there's a whole lot of people they may not know. So maybe a smaller you know smaller groups of of uh, gatherings are more suited for you than larger groups. But the obligation to go, I don't think anybody ever lost their job because they didn't make it to the office party. And if you lose a friend over it, chances are they're not friends to begin with. Mm. Do people try to cope with all of this through, how do I describe this, overconsumption? You know, uh, you know, too much eating, too much drinking, too much spending time with families. I mean, that's part of it as well. Is it's, it's sort of not have, as you say, wanting to wanting to be at every event and having and being so social all the time. There's almost, uh, as someone called it, merriment to the max. Yeah, it's like a bachelor party that never ends, right? It goes on for three or four days. And, you know, at the end of it, you just, you know, realize you ate too much, drank too much, didn't have any exercise, they haven't slept very well, and probably did a few things you don't feel real good about. So the idea, from my perspective, I think, it, you know, the time of year, uh, should make us, frankly, more aware of our activities. And, you know, if self-medicating is something that you're you're dealing with, like to try to cope, you're drinking more, smoking more, or using other kinds of drugs, medication, gambling, eating, all that stuff. If you're doing stuff to the max, like you said, um, to try to get, you know make your lousy day better, then it's something you probably need to talk to somebody about. If you're doing it because you're caught up and you just don't know how to say no, mm-hmm. then that's just a question of being able to put your foot down and go, you know what? This year, I don't think I'm going to overextend myself like I did last year. Uh, are you getting, in just in, in, in your life uh, and the people that you deal with, I mean, are we, when we talk about mental health a lot, is it just a case of uh, society finally understanding that this is a real issue that we have to deal with? Um, or do you think there's just actually been a rise in uh, the challenges of, of, of mental health because of modern life, social media, uh, 24-7 world? How, I mean, is it just a question of society recognizing this now? Or do you think this is a, just a growing issue? Uh, again, great question. Uh, you know, I, I, the magic answer is, you know, it could be all of the above. Mm-hmm. But the, truth fa- the true factor from where I sit over the last, say, 24, 36 months um, you know, the pandemic woke a lot of us up. Mm. A lot of people who didn't realize they had anxiety had, you know, started to see it after a week, two, three, four. People who realized that they had a social need to fill and then they didn't have it kind of, you know, became a little depressed and uncomfortable. You know, people who require, you know, who, you know, now were obligated to, to do things from home in a way that, you know, they couldn't get out of the house and maybe getting out of the house was healthy for them. You know, so for a lot of us, we all recognized, I think, you know, kind of all at once that, you know, we're all feeling a little angst and a little you know, anxious and for some of us more than others. And for a lot of people, it became debilitating and we started talking to each other about it because it's all we could do is talk to each other. We couldn't visit. And I think from that was born a more public, you know, community approach to it. And I think, thankfully, uh, it's opened the dialogue now that uh, we can talk about it without feeling like you're anything other than someone else in the crowd that's just having a bad day. 
And when we talk about mental health uh, and even anxiety, how interconnected is depression? So I would I boil it down for people and I say it like this. Depression mm -hmm. typically comes from stuff you're thinking about from yesterday or living in the past. Mm -hmm. Anxiety comes from a fear of the future or the things that haven't quite happened yet. So the best approach we can have, and you know, it sounds simple, but it takes work, is learning how to live in the moment or living what's called a mindful life. So the ability to focus on what's happening now helps you get away from the depression and the and the and the guilt and you know all the the, the anger and, and and the resentment that comes from all the things you did yesterday and the day before and the day before, and the anxiety that drives us you know usually comes from things that haven't happened yet that we're concerned about, worried about, thinking about keeps us up at at night. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, neither one of those events we can control. We can't control what happened yesterday. We can't control what's going to happen three days from now. Really, so. At the end of the day, take the control away, you know, deal with the stuff you can really deal with. And it takes all the pressure off of trying to pretend that you know what tomorrow's going to look like mm -hmm. or that you have some magic way of, you know, wiping the board clean from yesterday because it just doesn't exist. Yeah. Yona, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Merry Christmas to you. Happy New Year. All the best. Thanks, Jazz. I really appreciate being on and best to you too. Royal LePage is forecasting aggregate home prices in Canada will rise by 3.3% in the first quarter of 2024. Uh, and by the third quarter, Royal LePage has, uh, anticipates home prices will rise by 3.3%, uh, and followed by a 5.5% year-over-year bump in the fourth quarter. Uh, now, that is still nationally, those numbers. Metro Vancouver, of course, is a different animal. Our next guest is someone who has a good grasp of, uh, of this very interesting market. Andy Ramel is vice president. President of Advisory Services uh, at the Rennie Group, and he joins us now. Andy, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me back down, Jess. Yeah, it's uh, such an interesting market. It's uh, I, I don't know probably of a week that goes by that one of our talk shows isn't talking about <laughs> real estate, housing, affordability, all those issues. And it and, and like I said, if we didn't have this to talk about, what would we talk about a Vancouver dinner party? So it's the weather. Yes, <laughs> that's right. It's the weather. So let's talk a little bit about um, where the market is at this moment. Uh, you follow this market very closely. Uh, give me a snapshot of, of what you see at this moment. Well, in terms of a snapshot, uh, year-to-date uh, sales are down probably about 22%. We figured that we'll probably finish the year off with about uh, 40,000 sales, so well below our historical averages on in terms of the number of sales. But interestingly, listings are up, but up only marginally by about 1% uh, compared to our historical average. So yeah, while we've seen uh, the number of sales fall really, really low, there hasn't been a big push in terms of the number of listings out there, which mm -hmm. in an economically challenging time is what we would expect. Um, so uh, that back to Econ 101, yeah, there's not a huge, huge flux, influx of supply into the market on that side. And that's probably, that's what's put a little bit of a floor underneath some of the prices. Okay. Uh, and that lack of supply, it, is it just people, you know, obviously we need to be building more, but is it also just people saying, I'm not comfortable putting my property on the market right now then? Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. And, you know, this is where uh, human nature in hindsight, uh, people look back uh, a year and two and say, geez, it was worth a lot more back then. And maybe I'll just wait it out. Mm -hmm. So what we find right now, it's the situational 
buyers and sellers, uh, mm-hmm. people that have to either buy or sell who are the ones that are transacting, mm-hmm. uh, and a little bit of, uh, of the people who are downsizing, people with equity in the market. Um, they may be looking at it uh, as an opportunity here. Yes, they may take a little, uh, a little bit on the chin in terms of sale price, but uh, for a lot of those older uh, purchasers and sellers, uh, they got in at a period where it was still well below what it is right now. Yeah. Um, now, we all have seen the impact of high interest rates uh, on the real state sector uh, this year. Uh, are there any um, long-term structural changes this has inflicted on the industry? I mean, I'm completely wrong. I just hear so much. Uh, any sort of long-term impacts or structural changes you think the industry will be coming out of this uh, as we move to a much more lower interest rate environment? Yeah, it, structural, yeah, I have to put some timelines around structural. Uh-huh. Structural meaning fundamental, yeah, I think there's one interesting shift, and I think that's kind of along the generational side of things. Hmm. Um, affordability on the ownership side is, is has certainly reached a point where uh, we thought it was astronomical before, and it's just, it's just gotten worse. And for a lot of people, especially that younger generation, a lot of them are looking at it saying it's just not achievable, and uh, they maybe resolve to be in the rental market, which is not a bad thing. We've got some great cities that are predominantly rental, Canada, Montreal, uh, New York in the States, uh, and then, you know, many jurisdictions throughout Europe as well. So I think there's a structural change there as a result of some of the, not just high interest rates, but the high prices that uh, have resulted uh, through some of that uh, period of low interest rates that we've seen since uh, 2008, 2009. Yeah, and I mean, we've heard all the stories of, of people who, uh, um, you know, weren't expecting rates to rise so quickly. It's had a huge impact on people's bottom line. Some yeah. of them uh, have been hurting uh, in a very significant way. Um, I'm very curious, the folks that actually build housing, uh, what is this high, uh, high interest rate environment meant for them? Yeah, this is an interesting one. People always talk about uh, the owners in terms of uh, whether you be a new owner or a recent owner mm-hmm. and the impact of the, uh, your mortgage rates going up. But it's also put a real kink on the development industry side of things in that uh, the carrying costs for anybody who's trying to build something, um, they're moving up with the same rates that uh, that the Bank Canada is moving up. And so it's become a lot more expensive. And what's happened is uh, a lot of the projects that may have penciled in a lower interest rate environment, they actually don't make financial sense anymore. And uh, a lot of the developers are starting to uh, park some of the projects and and wait. So a bit of a kink in potential supply. If we look at uh, building permits nationally, building permits are down um, this year relative to same period last year, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't pretend well for the supply coming mm-hmm. online. Uh, so and there's a knock-on effect here as well, not just with respect to home ownership, but into the rental market. And uh, to the degree that there's not a lot of supply there and high interest rates and people not choosing to move, um, they're staying in the rental market for longer, which is putting undue pressure on the rental market. So low vacancy rates and increasing rents as well. We've seen double-digit increases in rents across Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had municipal leaders on this show in the last few months talking about things that need to be done for housing. I've had the housing minister on so much, I think he probably should have his own show here. In <laughs> the premier was sitting exactly where you were sitting a few weeks ago, saying that we need, as a government, to take big swings. That's what we're doing here. Um, I've had the immigration, federal immigration minister on, federal housing minister on the last six weeks or so as well. Uh, they've got their own programs, the Federal Housing yep. Accelerator Program and all that. Uh, your thoughts on all these announcements and legislation, uh, and I know it's very difficult to sort of answer this, but 
is it going to have an impact in your mind in, in that maybe not right away, but two or three years from down the road, you and I are talking again. Will we be talking about some of the changes that, that they are promising at this point? Most definitely. And I have to look back uh, over the medium term. And I think that BC has been a real leader with respect to a lot of the housing related policy. And you just need to look to other provinces to, uh, to see how, the, how they followed along with some of our policy shifts. Um, but as you said, there's, this isn't, none of these policy announcements are short-term solutions. Uh, it takes a long time to build housing, and uh, even in a streamlined municipal process, uh, it does take time. So it's, there's no overnight win here, but hopefully in that medium term, three to five years, we're going to start to see the added supply coming online uh, and a focus of that added supply into the rental side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also some of it uh, geared or tailored to, uh, to some of the lower income groups groups as well. So I think there, it, it will come. We just need to unfortunately be patient. And I know that's hard for a lot of people to hear who are living uh, in a situation where their housing is uh, inadequate or very unaffordable. But um, I think we are a leader across the country with respect to some of the provincial legislation. And that goes down to the municipal level as well. We are speaking to Andy Ramlow, Vice President of Advisory Services at the Rennie Group. We're talking about the year in real estate and where we're headed for 2024. Uh, now, Andy, let's talk about, um, uh, the not the elephant in the room, but the number one issue in my uh, opinion when it comes to housing, and that's immigration. Um, the Netherlands voted in a very, very liberal uh, part of the world, uh, a very progressive, but they voted in a pretty right-wing government. And the number one issue there was immigration. Yeah. And uh, I'm not saying we're comparing apples to apples, but I think in many ways, we as a Canadian society are similar to a certain degree to those parts of the world as well. And I think we're having that same type of conversation. Now, we're not against immigration, but what's the right type of immigration, particularly in the context of housing? Um, And I don't see any other G7 nation doing what we do in regards to the level of immigration. Walk me through your thoughts broadly in regards to how much of an impact you think our immigration levels presently are having on housing. Oh, I, I think it's fundamental. You can't, uh, the two are integrally tied. And I think from a political side of things, why we're starting to see the conversations here nationally about our immigration levels is because of the housing challenge. Mm-hmm. And so I think that uh, the, the federal government is going to be pushed in the short term to start to uh, reconsider or at least uh, document wh- why the level is uh, is what it's at. Um, but to your sort of notion of an, of an elephant in the room, we can talk about the, the year-to-date data that just came out from StatsCan was about 371,000 immigrants nationally. To, to this, at this point? At this point. Okay. To, yeah. So just a, 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 for, that's Q1, Q2, and Q, Q3 of this okay. year. First three um, But over the same period, there's 654,000 net non-permanent residents. And so non-permanent residents are people here, temporary foreign workers, international mobility program, and students. So, you know, there's certainly the immigration numbers are large. The, typically, that immigration number, we would see that 371,000 in a full year, not in the first three quarters of a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's well outweighed by the number of non-permanent residents as well. So, you know, it's, there's, there's, and, and there's also a housing implication on that non-permanent resident side of things. Yeah, and I, what I don't understand is out of the G7, we're the only ones, not, not that those countries don't have immigration, but the immigration at the level that we have, uh, what is it that we know that they don't? Like, why are the, we the only ones down this route, heading down this route? 
when the other countries uh, are not doing so. I mean, if you compared our immigration levels with non-permanent residents yep. and immigration, general immigration, it would almost be equal to the United States, a country yes. with about 300 million people, yep. right? With a nation of 40 million. Um, one would assume, when you just talk about housing specifically, there has to be a fundamental rethink here. Uh, or at least at least a, a critical conversation that I don't think we're having yet. Oh, agreed. Um, but this was something that uh, almost a decade ago we brought up with, when uh, Justin Trudeau came across doing co- a consultation for the national housing strategy. Because at that point we were starting to, in- to consider increasing immigration targets and said these two things should be integrally tied. Um, unfortunately, it necessarily wasn't the case that they got tied together, but that is the direction that some of the conversations are going. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, why we're doing this relative to our other G7s, you have to ask Minister yeah. Mark Miller on that one. But, you know, there is, a, in terms of the increases, we do have an aging population. Um, we've got a healthcare system that's a pay-as-you-go system that needs to be funded going forward, and uh, well as well as the rest of our social services. So there is good reason to increase the targets. Um, it's our demography. But next question that I think the federal government has to answer is uh, what is the right level or what the ultimate level is uh, going forward. Yeah. Uh, are, are we able to build the amount of housing that we need? I keep hearing about construction shortages. No. Nope. No, yeah, you guys, nobody can see me shaking my head. No, <laughs> no, fundamentally not. And this is something that construction industry, they, they make fun of me. They say, Ramlo, your numbers in terms of the housing stock, that's all great from a demographic demand side of things but we physically can't build it. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we sort of joke that, uh, you know, that we, what we sh- who we should be targeting on the immigration side is certainly uh, doctors and nurses because we have this aging population and we need them. But where are all the construction workers? Yeah. Uh, my final question to you, um, what does 2024 in your mind look like? And, you know, be brutally honest. I mean, I, I, I'm going to hope it's better than 2023. <laughs> it has to be because I don't think anything can be worse. But your sense of what 2024 will look like for the market? Well, we're hoping that uh, we'll probably see three rate cuts from the Bank of Canada, which should see uh, mortgage rates ease, uh, both on the fixed mortgage rate side of things as well as on the variable rate side of things. Um, so so some good news on that side. Uh, I guess the, the counterpoint to that would be we've seen such pent-up demand in the short term because of the high rates that uh, it could very well be that there's a big influx into the market as, uh, as those rates start to ease. Um, so that would be, you know... Depending on which side of the equation you're on, that could be a good news scenario or a bad news scenario as well. But uh, we're hopeful that uh, it'll be a little bit easier in terms of uh, financing things going forward. That would be from the homeowners through to the developers, uh, but then also hopefully providing some ease to uh, to the renters and the tenants out there as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I got a little bit of time. Um with the new legislation, the, the housing legislation brought in, you, you know, you can build four units on a property, if not more, depending on where you're located, if it's transit. Um, I think I've asked you this question before. Are we now with legislation that we're seeing, really, this is the start of of living beyond the single family home, like moving beyond this? Is, is that fair comment in your mind? Most definitely, yeah. And it would depend on where it is. We certainly have some areas within the city of Vancouver that are outside of some of that legislation, some of the heritage areas. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think the, the, so yes, the answer to your question, but 
along with that, there's a whole bunch of new questions that need to be asked. Um, what is the infrastructure underneath the, the yeah. streets and the roads uh, to accommodate that? Is it sufficient enough? Um, how about transportation and transit? Uh, do we have the infrastructure there as well? How are we funding TransLink uh, in terms of getting us all around as we potentially double the density on uh, on a lot of those traditionally single-family lots? Um, so, But, you know, I, I think this is a... a a good thing going forward. Uh, it's not, but it's not just about the immigrants and the migrants, right? I have two kids that are going to eventually want to move out and I'd love to see them close. Mm-hmm. And if that means uh, sticking a, another unit on the back of our lot, then so be it on that side of things. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, folks uh, would like to see that, you know, yep. and, that, and it is, it is, the legislation is uh, quite far reaching. It's just question is, what will it look like when we implement it, right? And that's the hard part. Most definitely. So that's a, a bit of a wait and see, but I think uh, we've got a lot of smart people out there that uh, that are watching these issues and hopefully we can catch uh, some of the missteps in the short term and uh, modify the policy to make it work for everybody. Andy, thank you. Thank you so much, Jess. All Have right. a fabulous year. If you've been listening to the news over the last few days, you'll know that the North Shore um, ski hills are struggling with the lack of snow at this particular point. And uh, skiers and boarders, of course, uh, in Whistler are, uh, aren't finding the conditions that much better up in uh, Whistler uh, Blackcomb based on some of the um, images uh, that we've seen posted on social media. Now, there is uh, snow expected between Christmas Eve and Boxing Day, so I don't want to be too negative here. Uh, But at this point, it is a later start uh, to the uh, ski season. But it does bring up the bigger and broader issue, which is what impact will climate change have on ski resorts. Well, in August, a scientific study published by the journal Nature Climate Change uh, showed that if there was a global warming were to continue to move forward as it is as, as it is happening, let's say global the globe warmed by 1.5 degrees Celsius, 32% of Europe's 2,200 ski resorts could face a very high risk of snow shortages. If temperatures hit 2 degrees Celsius, 53% of resorts would be in the same situation, 91% if it hit 3 degrees Celsius. Now, the global data covers 28 countries and takes into account the frequency of snow-poor winters as well as uh, the altitude and exposure uh, of slopes. And put it another way, at the global level, that if a carbon output follows today's trend, Sapporo, Japan, would be the only city out of 21 past Winter Olympic hosts that could hold a reliable, safe and fair games again by the end of the century. By the 2050s, a returning Olympic bid even in Vancouver would mean facing marginal conditions, including February rain and wet snow up to half the time. Uh, that is a very bleak picture, that's for sure. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the issues of climate change and the ski resorts is Andrew Weaver. He's a professor in the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences at the University of Victoria. And he's, of course, the former leader of the BC Green Party. Andrew, thank you for joining us today. A pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I was hearing all these uh, disparate stories about, uh, I'm not a skier, but, uh, you know, things uh, starting off slowly uh, on, the, on the North Shore Mountains and, and uh, in, uh, in Whistler uh, as well. Um, do these headlines surprise you? No, not at all. And in fact, we've seen this uh, before in a much uh, lighter way back in 2010 mm-hmm. when we were hosting the Winter Olympics. And of course, you remember the stories uh, of helicoptering in snow mm-hmm. from, from various mountains to Grouse Mountain and other places so that we could actually host them here. Uh, you know, this we know uh, 2013 is a, is a particularly uh, record-setting year. Uh, June was the warmest June in rest, um, recorded history. July was the warmest July, August the warmest August, September the warmest 
October the warmest, November the warmest, and 2023 will absolutely shatter the previous warmest record. And combined with that, of course, we have an El Nino going on, which uh, typically amplifies the warming locally here. So uh, this is to be expected. And frankly, um, you know, the days of Grouse Mountain producing good ski, uh, ski hills are, are basically on their way out in the years ahead. We know most of the glaciers, for example, in B.C. will be gone by this century. Mm-hmm. And, and, and those re- uh, resorts that are marginal in terms of precipitation coming in snow versus rain will really struggle more and more as the years go on. You know, we might get a, ironically, with an, a La Nina, the opposite of El Nino, you might get a, a couple of good snow years interspersed there. It, it doesn't just go away. Continue. But, um, you know, I, for one, uh, would not be investing my retirement savings in ski hills in British Columbia. Um, would, At least would, southern British Columbia. Southern British Columbia. Would there, that, was, that was my next question. Would there be much of a difference between, let's say, a Vancouver and Whistler uh, compared to, let's say, um, if you're up in Kamloops or Prince George? Yeah, I mean, uh, Prince George, when, as you get north, of course, it's it, ironically uh, it's probably going to get better skiing because as, as if it's cold, it's cold. But if it's cold and slightly less cold, that means the atmosphere is slightly warmer, mm-hmm. but it's still below zero, and that slightly warmer atmosphere holds a little bit more moisture so you can get bigger snows. So, so it does actually lead to better conditions in, 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 in more northern uh, 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 areas, but, but certainly for coastal regions, this is where it gets really dodgy. And we saw that in Mount Washington on Vancouver Island here, it was yeah, a couple of bad years. I'm not sure it's going to be a very good year this year. And we saw that with the 2010 Winter Olympics. And this year should be a pretty horrible year for for snow based on the ongoing temperatures in El Nino. Yeah, I was reading an article um, uh, that uh, quoted uh, climate scientists from the University of British Columbia, uh, Michael uh, Pidwerney, and, and basically saying that the just to what you're saying right now, that Mount Washington, Cypress Bowl, Grouse Mountain, Mount Seymour, and Hemlock will face steep declines in snowfall uh, by mid-century. And, um, oh, they already they already are now. I mean, like by mid-century, that's it's it's happening now. Look at look look out the window, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your mind, uh, let's let's walk away, step away just for a second here, uh, and we're talking about ski hills. Give me a sense of even in regards to glaciers and uh, that, and, and as if you keep following this train of thought, then it starts impacting water and water supply, and even in communities like grow fast-growing communities like Metro Vancouver. So the, the issue for, for British Columbia and our, and our, our, our latitudes, it will not be actual water um, uh, availability because there'll be tons of it. It's water storage. So, you know, we often rely based on water availability from snowpacks that melt. But as the spring comes earlier in the year, you're not getting that delayed snow melt. So, so, so really, in, in climate change brings a challenge for water, water storage for British Columbia. We, we, we'll need to build uh, dams higher, basically. Uh, because you're going to get less in the summer, and when it comes in the winter, less likely in snow, more likely in rain, coming in more likely extreme events. So, I mean, we've been saying the same thing as a community for decades and decades, and it, it's really quite frustrating, Jazz, to to you know have people look out the window and say, "Oh my goodness, uh, it's there's no snow on growth. This is really bad." Well, look, we were saying that 30 years ago. I mean, so it, and it's going to get an awful lot worse. So at some point, we need to you know stand back and say look, this problem is solvable. Let's get on with it. Thank goodness we have, you know, good directions happening provincially here and federally in Canada in climate policy. But but we just saw what was going on in UAE recently uh, with the COP meeting. And it's still, there's still this resistance to 
to recognize that climate change is here happening. It presents an incredible opportunity for innovation as we solve this problem. Mm-hmm. And really, the laggards who are holding us back from moving forward need to get out of the way. Hmm. Now, one of the things we also learned um, in the last little while is that uh, drought is impacting BC Hydro and, and water levels and, and dams that we have so we, to the point where you have to import about 10% of the power uh, for British Columbia from other other lo- locations. Um, what would you think we need to be doing in regards to, you know, there's a call for IPPs, which is wonderful, but I mean, I'm going to assume Site C is going to be the last big dam that we build in this in this province. What would you recommend if the Premier were to call you in regards to where what, what is our future sort of energy, what's going to meet our needs if another million people are moving to Metro Vancouver, our population continues to grow, we relied on hydroelectric dams for so many years, what would you want us collectively as a province to start looking at, what technologies to say, okay, what's going to power this province in for decades? moving forward what would you want to be looking at well it's it's actually we're we have it all here in bc so it's we have every possible source of renewable energy you could possibly want from tidal through geothermal through whatever so the problem with some of that of course like the solar and wind it's, it's intermittent so you have to couple it with storage but we have that too in our existing dams and we have enormous potential for increased storage. And actually, we have enormous potential to use our storage to reap benefits by stabilizing other intermittent loads, particularly south of the border. So there's something known as pumped hydro, for example. There's an awful lot of quarries around here that are big holes in the ground that are filled with water that, that when people dug minerals out. Uh, well, you can store water in there, and you can, you can let it go downhill and drive turbines when you need the energy to stabilize intermittent power. And if you have too much wind power, you can pump that water back uphill. So there are ways of storing intermittent energy. BC makes a ton of money right now through its hydro. And, you know, it's a little bit artificial to say we're importing 10% because uh, I, I know that that's the narrative. But what BC Hydro does is it makes a ton of money for BCs by playing arbitrage mm-hmm. with the California uh, intermittent market. California uh, gets way too much solar in the middle of the day for it to use itself. So uh, back in the day, BC used to, you know, uh, sell its hydro at, at, at night and buy coal in coal. Uh, it, it, sorry, buy coal at night and sell its hydro in the day to help California. Now BC is buying virtually free solar in the day and selling hydro at night at peak rates. Uh, to make a, a, a price differential from that. So I, I see that continuing. We could already supply all our own energy if we wanted to, but we use a lot of that through the export through PowerX. And, and it's, governments love PowerX. It's our trading arm of BC Hydro because revenues that come through PowerX go directly into government coffers to spend on things that politicians want to spend money on. So, so I see that continuing, but there's more potential for storage in BC. You know, I, finally, we're starting to see the calls for, for power again. Mm-hmm. But we really have a problem in British Columbia in that British BC Hydro is a barrier to innovation in the renewable energy sector because they are the only ones who can purchase power produced by the renewable energy sector. If you're an innovative company that wants to move to BC and power your, you know, you take advantage of our resources, you can't do it and just build your own windmills. You need to get BC Hydro involved, you know. If I, if I happen to live next to you and we had, uh, I had a bunch of windmills on my, my property, I couldn't even sell my next-door neighbor my, my electricity. You know, there, there, there's so many regulatory barriers because of the way we did things and because of self-interest of, say, BC Hydro, which, which basically has a monopoly. I, I, I get, 
east southeastern BC has got Fortis, which which provides electricity. But but this is this is the problem for innovation. We need more competition, and we need to be able to allow the renewable energy sector to flourish. Mm-hmm. And it actually, finally, on that topic, produces an opportunity for economic reconciliation with indigenous peoples because most of those renewable energy projects lie in rural regions, and much of that sits on unceded traditional territory. So there's a win-win-win-win possibility here, given we have the dams, given we have the market south of the border, and our ability, and we have power X, and we have ability to produce energy. I just wish we'd get on with it, and uh, somebody would take on the, the you know, the, the kind of elephant in the room, which is BC Hydro's monopoly on basically whether or not renewable energy goes forward. Well, Andrew, I promise you we will have a long series on our energy future uh, for the spring of 2024. We're already working on that, and we'll have you back on for sure on that issue. Yeah, no, we are definitely going to do that. I think it's it's part of the broader conversation. Uh, If we don't speak before the end of the year, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Happy New Year. Thank you, as always, for making time for myself and for our audience. Thank you so much, Andrew. And to you and your show as well. Thanks again, Jess. So while hockey is still Canada's most popular spectator sport, yet many fans question how organized hockey has evolved from its origins as they watch the NHL expand ever deeper into non-traditional markets like the American South, taking the best young Canadian talent and leaving major Canadian markets in Quebec, the Maritimes and the Prairies uh, in the cold. Now, minor hockey, once the pride of smaller communities, now serves as a brutal corporate feeder system for the NHL, often shipping players as young as 14 far away from their homes and families on shore notice. Uh, Regina-born Neil Longley is currently the director of business at Nevada State University in Las Vegas. In his new book, A Whole New Game, Economics, Politics, and the Transformation of the Business of Hockey in Canada, he contrasts the current state of the game with the way it was before the expansion era. Neil, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. It's glad to be here. Uh, now, uh, you were born in Saskatchewan. Uh, you've uh, followed hockey as, as, as a young man and throughout your life. What convinced you to write this book now? Well, I think there was a, a couple of things. One is that over time, I began to see that the game that I followed as a kid looked very different, not just on the ice, but really in, in terms of the business and economic aspects of it. And professionally, I went on to become an economist and decided that I was going to study um, the economics of professional sport leagues as one of my uh, main focuses, and particularly emphasis on hockey. So for me, it was sort of uh, combining here work with pleasure. During that time, though, in looking at, at the NHL, I really started to see that a lot of these changes over the past half century in many ways are very parallel with the changes, the underlying changes that have gone on in Canada itself. So that for me was, was fairly fascinating. Mm-hmm. And, and when you say those underlying changes to Canada, are those economic? Are they demographics? What do you mean by that? Certainly, certainly much of both. I think demographically we saw the, the, the movement west. We saw the west in general become a much more major player. Uh, certainly... Uh, Alberta, and I talk in the book about the the Battle of Alberta in the '80s and how the 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 rise of the New West and the oil producers uh, of Alberta and the Peter Lougheed government were sort of pushing back at the east. Uh, British Columbia, uh, a massive expansion in population over the last 50, 60 years. Um, you know, at one point, and, and I guess I was intrigued by this. My, my own, as you said, my own home province of Saskatchewan was actually in the '40s the third largest 
by population province in Canada after only Quebec and Ontario and has, of course, since been long surpassed. So I think that was definitely part of it. I think we've seen on the business side, uh, you know, freer markets, uh, freer movement of goods and services. And with that, I think we've also seen an increasing role and, and if some might say domination of U.S.-based franchises within the uh, the National Hockey League. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, focus just on something. Just uh, There's a couple of issues to focus on here, but let's focus a little bit on the economic factors. Um, what kind of changes on the economic side are you seeing in, in the professional ranks, for that, for that matter, even in the minor league ranks in places like British Columbia? Right. I think on the professional side, you know, the, the game of hockey at the NHL level has always been a business. You know, that, that's not new. But I think over the last 30 years or so, particularly in the, the Gary Bettman era um, of the NHL when he became commissioner, the, the changes, of, Gary Bettman's view, he came from the NBA, was very much to, 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 to copy, copy the NBA model. And this part of this meant having a national footprint in the United States and really being in every top television market in, in, in that country. Mm-hmm. And I think so, therefore, you know, we, we saw some of those biases move that way in terms of um, franchises in uh, U.S. cities that may not have a strong tradition of hockey and hockey following, um, but bring the population. You know, and, and the idea that capturing even a small percentage of the market in a very large market uh, maybe better than capturing a large percentage of the market in, in, in a small market. So that, that was definitely, I think, something that we've seen change over the last 30 years. And there's been other changes. Well, technology, uh, the, the major U.S.-based franchises in the early 90s started to become economically much stronger than their, most of their Canadian counterparts. The rise of digital television caused the, uh, the local TV, TV revenues in the uh, some of the major U.S. markets had just explode. So we went from an era where it was largely a gate-driven league, the one where the size of the market you were in from a, from a local TV perspective became a very dominating factor. Uh, I think on, on, on the more minor league level, I, I, have a, I have a chapter in the book on uh, junior hockey. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, you know, many uh, uh, Western Hockey League franchises in British Columbia, and its evolution has in some way mirrored the NHL. And, and I talk in the book about how um, before the draft got uh, instituted in the NHL in the late 60s, that essentially NHL clubs controlled the, uh, the entire Canadian amateur hockey system. And that meant sponsoring teams uh, across the country. That ended when the, when the draft started. But when we, when we saw the junior leagues and the junior operators not kind of be freed from direct control by the NHL. We saw those leagues, uh, to me, interestingly formed as almost mini NHL, mm-hmm. uh, where they held their own drafts. They limited supply of franchise. I talk in the book about how monopoly leagues like the NHL, uh, one of their lifebloods to, to higher revenues is to limit supply of their franchises, to make them more valuable. You know, So we've seen that extend down to junior hockey as well. Um, so I think, for me many, many parallels on the economic and business side of major junior hockey uh, with the National Hockey League. Um, 
I grew up in a small town in the interior here in British Columbia called Williams Lake. It's about six hours north of Vancouver here. And, uh, you know, that era of the 70s and 80s, um, you know, life was around the local hockey arena and your local hockey team. Um, are we losing it out with the amount of European players and American players uh, in, in the NHL? And yes, there's lots of Canadians that still play in the NHL. Um, are we seeing less, and maybe it's just me, are we seeing less of small-town Canada represented in the NHL, or, or is this just my perception? No, I think, John, we're definitely seeing less. And um, I, 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 hockey very much through the 40s, 50s, even in the 60s, many of those players, if not most of them, came from rural areas. There wasn't a lot from British Columbia at the time. That's, that's changed now. But at that time, it was mainly Saskatchewan and Manitoba. In the early 50s, they accounted for about 40% of the players in the NHL and made up about 12% of the country's population. So hugely overrepresented. Northern Ontario mining towns, uh, forestry towns, same kind of thing. You had the Tim Hortons and so on who all grew up in northern Ontario. So, um, yeah, and, and you go back uh, and, you know, you, you look at, um, you know, the Watson brothers back in the 70s, and they were, um, you know, they were very predominant with the Philadelphia Flyers. So it was a small-town game. So I think part of what has happened definitely is the influx of, of Europeans and I think, yeah, more, even more important in recent eras is, is the Americans. Um, the game and the, the development of the game has changed. It's, it's migrated from rural bases into big cities. There's more resources. There's higher levels of competition. Uh, you know, training has become much more technologically sophisticated. So I think there's so many factors here that have caused that game and the roots of the game to really move away from sort of small-town Canada. We are speaking to Neil Longley, author of A Whole New Game, Economics, Politics, and the Transformation of Hockey in Canada. Great book. Hope you um, can pick it up. Uh, I certainly enjoyed uh, reading it. Neil, one of the other uh, issues, uh, and as I was reading the book, was... um, you know, there was always at one time, and perhaps even you, you hear a little bit of it even today, less so uh, certainly, a resistance to European players um, uh, playing in the NHL. So when Canadians today talk about, um, you know, hockey in sort of non-traditional markets, as I said, we've had resistance to even Europeans at one time. Uh, do you think that's more nostalgia and, 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 and do you think we may be wrong in the case of hockey, you know, will do just fine in non-traditional markets over the long term. Right. I, I, you know, I think two parts to that. I think there, there definitely over time was resistance to the European players, particularly, you know, when they first started migrating to North America. Uh, you're right. I think we hear much less of that now. And I think, I think for hockey fans in Canada, um, I would say that they're they're less bothered by that than that second part where we're seeing teams placed in non-traditional, usually U.S. markets. Uh, and for many Canadians, I think they see that at the expense of other possible markets in Canada, you know, the Quebec cities, the Hamiltons, and, um, you know, even stretching at the Saskatoons kind of thing. And And I think that's where some of the dissatisfaction comes into play kind of in the modern era. You know, why is that happening? And for me, uh, it kind of goes back to the fact that, you know, the NHL really is a collection of the owners of the 32 existing 
clubs. And for them, they're going to make expansion moves. They're going to locate franchises in places where they can make the most the, the most revenue. And going along with that, I think, is, again, this idea that inherently there's a limitation of supply of franchises. So it's not a Quebec City and a Houston, Texas question. It may turn out to be a Quebec City or a Houston, Texas. And I think in many cases in the modern era, you know, the Quebec cities of this world are, are probably going to lose that, um, you know, that battle. Uh, so I think that is what, what has occurred. I, you know, I currently for the last five years, I lived in Las Vegas, and this is about as non-traditional a market as you can get. And, and the, the Golden Knights here have done a fantastic job of marketing their product to a, uh, a hockey, uh, to a base of fans that really do not have much of a history with hockey, but it's a different game here. It's a different game, I think, in a lot of non-traditional U.S. markets where the fans see the game very differently. Um, I lived in, in Massachusetts for 15 years, and even there, where hockey has a much longer tradition, mm-hmm. fans there see the game differently than Canadians do. It's, it's a business. It's entertainment only. I think in Canada, we see it as being a lot more than that. Can you ever see a, a, another NHL team in the U.S., sorry, in Canada, uh, based on what we've been watching the last 20 years, 25 years? Would there ever be a, another team in Canada, an expansion team? I, I don't think you, you ever say it could never happen, but I think it, it, the probability of that happening, particularly in the medium term, the near to medium term, is, is probably fairly low. Um, you know, Quebec City has been talked about a lot. Uh, they have the arena in place, but it's still a relatively small market, um, certainly based on population. So I, I think, you know, and, and, and eventually the um, the era, the Gary Bettman era will, will change in the NHL. And it's unclear how much, you know, his pers- personal vision has driven some of these decisions. But I think we will probably see a little different perspective. But yeah, Jess, I, I mean, I have a hard time envisioning anywhere in the near future that we're going to see much of a change there. Now, recently I was talking to a, a friend of mine and uh, his son um, is drafted to play in the WHL. We got to talking a little bit about the minor league system, junior hockey as well. And I am always hesitant to talk to parents sometimes because you hear complaints pretty quickly once you start that conversation. Um, right. In, in your mind, uh, how do you think we fixed the system uh, so that, you know, there is, um, you know, perhaps a, a better understanding of what the par- players' needs are and making sure these players, whether they play professionally or end up doing other things, that they're prepared for life. What kind of things do you think we need right. to be doing in the minor league system uh, to make it a bit more equitable and fair and ultimately making sure these young players uh, have different avenues to succeed in life if it isn't hockey? I think that's a great question. It's a very difficult question to answer because it is is so um, entwined with with the history of junior hockey, which has always, at some level or another, um, placed these these boys and young men at disadvantages. I mean, even going back 50, 60 years. I think in the modern era, one of the things we have to recognize is the is the you know, for example, the Western Hockey League. Uh, is an independent entity, and we have private owners of many, if not most, of the franchises. And the days when uh, junior hockey clubs uh, were an extension of the amateur hockey systems in each of these um, cities and towns in Canada, you know, that ended 
back you know, over 40 years ago. So that, I think that's what people remember or think about is the roots of junior hockey. And it is a separate entity. So I think it's going to be very difficult to get uh, a private entity, you know, Western Hockey League, and, and it's you know, largely privately owned clubs, uh, to make change. And uh, one of the things I raise in the book is, is, the, uh, uh, is the draft system in junior hockey. And, you know, so you've got a, uh, you've got a Connor Bedard from North Vancouver mm-hmm. uh, being drafted by my hometown team, the Regina Pats. And that is a, uh, that's a, that's a big move. That's, that's, um, you know, and, and for a player of his stature, uh, it was going to work for him anyway. But I think for a lot of boys and young men, um, those kinds of moves are uh, potentially, uh, you know, we, we, I think we have to really question whether that's in, in the interest of young men, particularly men under the age or boys under the age of 18. Uh, it's, it's hard to fix. I think, I think, um, I think part of that is, is, uh, is what it is now. Uh, someone would have to, as a third party else, would have to come in and kind of break up the, uh, you know, the private leagues. And I'm not envisioning anyone uh, doing that in the near future. So that, 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 that to me is, is, is certainly a concern as to where we're at in the modern era. Maybe one of the biggest concerns um, is, is that. But it's junior hockey has been, they talk in the book, junior hockey has been criticized decade through decade through decade, um, and we haven't seen any material change. But I guess I'm pessimistic about your question <laughs> in terms of how things might change. We're speaking to Neil Longley, author of A Whole New Game, Economics, Politics, and the Transformation of Hockey uh, in Canada. Uh, Neil, we've got a few more minutes. I, I wanted to ask you about uh, one of the things that you, you brought up um, in our conversation, which is more and more uh, uh, sort of draftees coming out of major urban centres, less so from small-town Canada for a variety of factors. This is very specific to Vancouver, uh, and I know Toronto, the GTA area, has sent many and continues to send many players um, uh, to the NHL. Uh, I know we have Connor Bedard out of Vancouver here, uh, latest sensation, and we've had many others come out of the city. When I look at Vancouver, I also see a city with that is a very expensive city to live in, number one, one of the most expensive in the world. Um, you have very high land costs here as well because we're surrounded by water, uh, mountains, and the border which means it's very difficult to build arenas even. And then the general cost of hockey, uh, it, it, it doesn't go down for, for, for your average parent. Do you worry at all uh, about cities like Vancouver over the longer term where, where the game itself is accessible to a narrower and narrower class of society uh, rather than it being available 50 years ago, 35 years ago to much more people, particularly small-town Canada, that I would think, over the long term, that's also one of the challenges hockey has before it is just the entry point to play for kids. It's exactly right. And I think that's, uh, you know, the whole cost issue you raise, whether it's costs of, of, of living in cities like Vancouver, building arenas, it's also costly for parents in terms of the development process and having. Uh, the young players go to the right camps, the right places. Uh, in some cases, uh, you know, development from a from a, a physical fitness perspective, training methods. So this has become extremely costly. And I think gone are the days when when you know uh, children could be uh, 
sort of throwing it onto an ice rink and, and, and kind of play as they may, and, and some develop into stars, some don't. And I know, again, from from my roots in uh, in Saskatchewan, um, you know, how, how players develop in past eras are, are nothing like they, they do today. I mean, I think Vancouver has the advantage of what is a, um, a highly populated urban area, but it also has some disadvantages, as you mentioned, in terms of cost issues and, 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 and that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, uh, uh, <laughs> and I, I can, I can attest that Saskatchewan still has the advantage of, uh, Kids can still play outdoors in January. Um, so <laughs> that is true. You can Vancouver. Yeah, that is true. The entry point for uh, you know sports like basketball are much cheaper. You pair of sneakers and a and a ball, and you exactly. can go. But uh, anybody, any hockey parent will tell you about those costs. Many years ago, I was posted abroad as a reporter, and I, I was uh, one of my favorite stories I ever covered was when I was living in India. Uh, for um, the highest altitude hockey is played in in, in northern India in in, in Kashmir and. Uh, along the Himalaya Plateau there, mm-hmm. about 12,000 feet above sea level. And it was wonderful watching Canadians play. They go every year to play. Uh, and it was very unique. And But, you know, it's never going to be a market for the NHL. Uh, but it was wonderful to see that this amazing uh, game played in so many different parts of the world. I look at NBA's expansion. Um, you know, it's Las Vegas and Seattle next. There's also talk, however, of um, Mexico City potentially one day. And it is an accessible sport. They're pushing to China when I live there. You can see they're pushed now into India as well. It's an accessible sport. Hockey has a tougher time. Do you see hockey expanding beyond its uh, core sort of North American roots, uh, even if it is a Sun Belt? Do you see one day perhaps a European team joining the league uh, in some way? Or do you think it'll be a sport that does very well in North America, but mostly North America? I, I think at this point, Jazz, I would have to say it's still largely going to be a North American sport. I think you know, the entry point, the, the obvious entry point would be in Europe. And even Europe, as, as we know, uh, encompasses a lot of territory. In many of those places, um, there is no real interest in hockey. So I think you're looking you know, at, at um, uh, the Czech Republic, you're looking at Sweden, Finland, and so on. You're looking uh, at Russia, but we now know what's, what's, what's happening there. So I mean, these are these are kind of the 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 places. The I, I wouldn't call it a niche game, but it certainly doesn't have that broad appeal. I spend quite a bit of time uh, in Germany uh, oh. working with colleagues, and you know, hockey has a presence there, but it's 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 down the list. It's it's not uh, basketball. I think is is is, is more popular. Than certainly, soccer. What's there? It has a following, but it's not like the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. uh, not like Sweden. So, and I think one of the things uh, from an NHL expansion perspective, uh, teams have to be located in cities where there is uh, enough wealth and money to go around to support a team on the level that the NHL uh, would expect. And that isn't necessarily always true in some of the potential rabid hockey markets in Europe. So we have to have that interest in hockey that goes along with uh, enough consumer spending wealth to be able to support, uh, you know, season after season at an NHL club. Uh, my final question to you, uh, you currently live in Las Vegas, uh, a home of a Stanley Cup champion, while, he, us, the, while the rest of us here in Vancouver are still hoping and praying one day uh, to see a Stanley Cup here. Any advice you give our city? 
Well, I will say that um, I was living in the Boston area back in 2011, and, uh, you know, the Canucks probably should have won the Stanley Cup that year. And I, I did kind of feel bad for them. I wasn't particularly connected to the Bruins. Uh, hopefully uh, they will get back. What I will say from an economics perspective, Jazz, is I think since 2005, since the NHL implemented the hard salary cap, Canadian franchises do have more potential to, you know, to win it all. And I think there are still some advantages to large market U.S.-based clubs, even with a salary cap. But I think the, the, the playing field has been leveled somewhat. And, you know, as we well know, in the Stanley Cup playoffs, um, you know, you have to win 16 games, and sometimes it's who's hot at the right time and who has uh, the hot goalie. And I'm not sure the Golden Knights uh, – we're necessarily the best team in the NHL last year, but, but they did it at the time they needed to. So I think, I think we will see a Canadian team win the Stanley Cup. Um, when, I guess, is, is, is another question. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if one broke through here in the next, let's say, five years. We don't know who that's going to be. Could be the Canucks. Fingers crossed, that's for sure. Neil, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Chad. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.